This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. My six-year-old recently asked my mom how she has money if she doesn't work anymore. I didn't expect to explain the concept of pensions, 401ks, and social security to my first grader, but in doing so, I summarized the very different positions my mom, a boomer born in the 1950s, and me, a millennial born in the 1980s, find ourselves in while saving and planning for retirement. I told my kid, in essence, grandma, her job, and the government all saved money while she was working, but I just have to save money by myself. While this is an extremely cynical and simplified explanation, it's also a pretty accurate description of how retirement has changed over the last few generations. Traditional pension plans funded by employers that promised workers guaranteed income in retirement were common in my grandparents' generation. In fact, my grandfather was able to retire in his late 50s and live on his pension and Social Security benefits until his 90s. But employer-funded pension plans were already diminishing for boomers and Gen X, who worked in the private sector, and now only a quarter of employees have traditional pension plans. And as you've likely heard, Social Security is an equally bleak story for current workers. It's only guaranteed to be fully funded through 2035. All of this means that most of us are in the position that I described to my kid, left to save for ourselves. While nearly 70% of private industry workers have access to workplace retirement plans like 401ks, employer matching isn't a given, and even so, just around 51% of employees even participate in employer retirement savings plans. Even if you're able to save for retirement, the age that you can expect to stop working has been on the rise. The official retirement age in the U.S. has creeped up from 62 to 65 to 67. So how is retirement changing for those of us with a few years versus a few decades left in the workforce? How can you plan for retirement at any age or career stage? And how is retirement likely to change over the next few generations? I really hate the fact that we often have this idea of work-life balance as if work and life are two separate spheres. And we have a similar kind of black and white thinking about retirement, like you work and then you retire and then you have fun. Whereas for many of us, there are seasons where we need to take a step back from work because we're caring for our children, we're caring for our elderly parents. We just need a break or we have an incredible opportunity to travel. And so I would like to see that kind of balance spread out more along our lives. That's Emily Guy Birkin. She's an author, money coach, and retirement expert who has written several books, including Choose Your Own Retirement and The Five Years Before You Retire. She's also written several personal finance articles for Fast Company. I asked her how retirement has changed in the last several years. The thing about retirement that we tend to forget is that it's a relatively new phenomenon in human history. So when we talk about how retirement's changed in the last several years, we're talking about it as if retirement was something that was passed down on stone tablets by Moses and only in a few last few years, like it's been ruined for those of us who are too young to have gotten pensions. And that is not the case. Retirement as we understand it is only about 60, 70 years old. Social insurance was first invented in the 1800s, Otto von Bismarck and all of that. But even up until the 60s and 70s, a lot of our grandparents were not necessarily 
finishing their job, getting a gold watch and a nice luncheon, and then going to Florida to play golf. Retirement just was like, I'm not physically able to work anymore, so I will be at home. So that's the first thing that I really want to remind people of, because when we start with the idea that like, oh, retirement is so much worse now, it's changed. It's starting with this idea that there was something that we've been denied. The truth is every generation is figuring this out anew. So I will say like the folks who were in the baby boom generation probably got among the best deals because so many of them did get the gold watch, the luncheon and the pension and healthcare paid for through the rest of their lives and all of that. But that doesn't mean that retirement is going to be bad for those of us who are younger than the baby boom generation. It just means that we're figuring out a different way. And then the other benefit and part of the reason why retirement is changing is because we're living longer and healthier lives. So we're starting with a blessing, which is that we can anticipate living to our 80s, our 90s, even into our 100s. And so that is part of the alchemy that goes into figuring out how to make retirement work. It does mean there's a lot more DIY of your retirement. We are the generation who has to figure out how to make our 401k work, has to figure out how to fund an IRA, has to figure out how to stitch together 401ks from multiple different jobs and things like that. And so it's the double-edged sword of because it's a DIY, you get a lot more choice because you are the one creating it, but you have to be the one to create it. It's not going to be there if you don't do it yourself. Yeah. Oh my God. There's so much in what you just said. And there's so many paths, you know, to take in that. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the different generations. So mm -hmm. for millennials and Gen Z, and even for some Gen X, the kind of prevailing belief is that retirement is unattainable for them, mm -hmm. that things like social security will be gone, that it's impossible to save enough. Do you think that kind of social safety net that older generations depended on will in fact end? And how do you think millennials and Gen Z will approach retirement differently if that is the case. So this is one of my soapboxes. One of my pet peeves is when I meet people who are my age or younger saying, well, I know social security is not going to be there. If social security is not there for us, that means we've got bigger problems than retirement and social security. And when I say bigger problems, I mean like the meteor is coming. <laughs> I mean like global catastrophe. So it will be there. The thing about Social Security is it is a direct transfer from current workers to current beneficiaries. People get very concerned, and in part because the talking heads really like to use it as, as a, a, a major point in their sound bites, that the Social Security Trust Fund is going to run out in about 10 years. All of that's true. All of that's not great, but the Social Security Trust Fund is not how we fund the majority of our Social Security payouts. And actually, we have the trust fund specifically because the baby boom generation was so big for many years until 2013. I believe it started in the late 80s. We brought in more in taxes, Social Security taxes, than we had to pay out in benefits because there were so many baby boomers working. Then when they started retiring, we had that trust fund there so that we had the money to kind of cover that huge number of people retiring every day. I find it worrisome that so many young folks are like, well, there's no possible way I can retire, so why bother? The 
current situation is confusing. It's worrisome. There's a lot going on in the world that can cause people to feel like they need to kind of just be cynical. So I remember talking to a friend from college who said to me, well, my plan for retirement is just to assume that the oceans will rise, everything will be chaos, and we'll be it'll be Mad Max, and that's my retirement plan. Money will mean Oof. nothing by then. That's bleak. So, little bleak, yeah. And he was making a joke, and in the way that he said it was funny, but what that really reflected to me was his own discomfort and fear about figuring out what he needed to do for retirement and making plans looking forward. And so my feeling is that, and it comes from also fear of things like climate change and all of those issues that are so big and none of us can solve independently. <laughs> we feel out of control. I truly believe that it is not only more optimistic and feel better to plan for as if things are going to work out well. I think it's the more responsible choice too, because when you come at things like, I don't know how we're going to fix the climate crisis. I don't know how I'm going to be able to afford to retire, but I'm going to plan as if I can. I'm going to plan as if my kids will be able to have grandkids. Because then if you do that, you don't go, well, why bother recycling? It's not going to do anything. Why bother opening a 401k or setting something up in my work or sending money to my IRA? Because I'm not going to be able to retire. That is a completely understandable and human reaction to something that feels overwhelming, but it kind of abdicates the responsibility. And so for the younger folks who do kind of have that very cynical sense of humor, I would challenge them to look at it as, you know what, things are bad, but I'm going to plan as if they're going to get better. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it because you're right. When you start to go down that road of, yeah, why bother recycling? Why bother doing anything that we're all going to die tomorrow? Who cares? <laughs> Attitude. I'm interested for you to explain a little bit more what you were saying about Social Security. So and I think we all kind of know and it makes sense like the baby boom generation was big. They put a lot into Social Security. Now they're retiring. The generations behind them who are now putting into Social Security are smaller. So that's why... There's more people withdrawing from the fund than putting into the fund. That's why the fund is being depleted. But why do you say it won't go away? It won't be depleted since there are all the headlines of, you know, in 10 years, it's going to mm -hmm. run out or it's going to be depleted. So once the trust fund is depleted, we are going to be able to pay about 75% of currently promised benefits. And that is the thing to remember about Social Security. Social Security is not like a business. It's not like a household's finances. It can't run out of money because we can always change the rules slightly or find new ways to bring money in. And so we tend to think of money as this finite thing. There's a vault somewhere with all of the money in the Social Security Trust Fund just in there. And like you can do a Scrooge McDuck and swim through it. But that's not how money works. And so when we get to 2033 and they can only fulfill 75% or, or thereabouts of promised benefits, that is not a good thing. I am not in any way claiming that's a good thing, but that is not nothing. And that is based on the rules as they are currently written. Because Social Security is a government program, it can be changed at any time with the stroke of a pen. And America is the only nation in the world that does a 75-year projection of its social insurance program. So in 1983 was when they raised the retirement age uh, the first time. And that was because 
we saw that the baby boomers were a coming. <laughs> At the time, the oldest baby boomers were, I think, 38 years old. So, I mean, they were years away from retiring. And they moved full retirement age from 65 up to 67. And so they planned ahead. Now, I, in 1983, I was four years old, so I was not paying attention. I don't really have a sense of what Congress was like then, if it was easier to get things done compared to the gridlock we often see these days. I do know that Social Security is often a political football, but it is also an extremely popular program. And even if they hold the political football up until zero hour, something will change to either reduce promised benefits for people my age and younger, which not great, but still we'll know what to expect. And 10 years from now, we'll still be quite a ways off from retiring. Or they could increase the base amount that they tax for Social Security right now. There's Social Security taxes only for the first $147,000 that you earn. So people with very high incomes only pay into Social Security for that portion. And I think if we raised it to something around $250,000 per year as the base amount, that would get us to where we were in the early 80s, proportionally with inflation. So there are a number of ways to avert this coming shortfall. It's just a matter of getting the political will to pass them. Yeah, I feel like there's so much, and I'm guilty of it too, that most people don't understand about retirement, but also about just those programs like Social Security. We feel like it's exactly that. There's this pot of money and it's all going to be gone by the time I get there. And mm -hmm. that's it. I think that it's really important that, as you point out, there's all of these different levers and factors that can factor into it. So as we've covered on the show before, jobs are not what they used to be. And we've talked about on the show before how there's a lot more people freelancing and working in kind of non-traditional setups. What does retirement look like for non-W-2 employees? So for gig workers, freelancers, non-W-2 employees, you get the added bonus of on top of the fact that retirement is DIY these days. I mean, like your employer can provide a 401k and a match and things like that, but it's still up to you. They then have to DIY the DIY. <laughs> and that is really tough. You also can't have automatic transfers from your paychecks if you're getting if you're a gig worker. You're not getting taxes withheld, so you're certainly not going to get something withheld for your 401k or for an IRA. So what I think can be helpful is the fact that a lot of the people who are kind of balancing these freelancing careers or this gig work is that these are folks who generally feel comfortable with the hustle or are good at that sort of thing. And so if they make retirement planning as part of their hustle, they can get into a good place to be prepared for it. And so part of that is set up an IRA or a Roth IRA now. If you don't have one, do it now. Do it today. You'll <laughs> open one today. And then figure out an amount of money that you will not miss that you can transfer weekly, bi-weekly, monthly. So it could be something like you could be doing really well and say like, I won't miss 50 bucks a week and have that transferred automatically for your checking account. Or you could be like, I don't know, five bucks a month. Either way is fine. And just have that going in the background, quietly transferring to your IRA while you're doing your gig work. And so that is the kind of set it and forget it kind of automation that is so helpful when you have W-2 work 
because once a year or however you say, okay, I want 4% to go to my 401k and I get the matching up to this amount, blah, blah, blah. And then it just does it. This is a similar sort of thing. Since your income fluctuates, you have to figure out what's the most amount of money you can afford without noticing it coming out of your account on a regular basis. And then in addition to that, when you get a windfall, when you feel flush, when you get like an excellent tip, send half of that to your IRA so that you have like kind of a system in place for investing for retirement without having the structure of a workplace retirement program. That's a good suggestion too, even for traditional W-2 employees, if Mm -hmm. they get a bonus to set a certain amount aside. I can just foresee that there are definitely people listening and I will maybe be, I like kind of sort of know I may be one of them. What's the difference between a 401k and an IRA and a Roth IRA? So so I'll start with the 401k. That is a workplace retirement program. There are such things as solo 401ks. I have one myself that you can open if you are self-employed, sole proprietor, that sort of thing. With a 401k, there is a maximum amount that you can contribute each year. It goes up generally each year, sometimes it takes a couple of years. Right now, it's $22,500 that you can contribute unless you are over 50, in which case you can contribute another $5,000, so $27,500. So that is where we're coming from with the 401k. The IRA, it used to be individual retirement account, and now it's the IRA stands for something else, which I don't. <laughs> it's not the Irish Republic Army. No. no. But the and isn't a 401k pre tax and a yes. IRA is post tax, right? No. Is that one of the big? No. So, <laughs> so with the 401k, it is pre tax income. So that means you're reducing the total income that you have to declare on your taxes. And so you're lowering your tax burden. And so that's why there's a maximum contribution limit. Because if someone who earns a heck of a lot of money or lives off of their family or something like that, they can be like, all right, I'm putting all 75000 I earned into the 401k and not paying taxes on a penny. So that's what's going on with the 401k. There are Roth versions. The IRA was the first that had a Roth version. There are now also Roth 401ks, which is an account that you fund with money you have paid taxes on. So what that does is you've already paid taxes. It goes in. In both cases, the money grows tax-free. You do not have to worry about paying taxes while it is growing. Once you reach retirement age, which basically means you have to have the account for five years or be age 59 and a half or older, you can take that money out to use for whatever you want. With the 401k, when you take the money out, you are going to pay taxes on what you take out. With the Roth version, you do not owe taxes because you already paid it. So the money is kind of like free money in retirement because you don't have to worry about paying taxes on it. You also do not have required minimum distributions. With 401ks and traditional IRAs, once you reach age 72, Uncle Sam is going to say, you have to take at least this much out this year because they want you to pay taxes on it. And it's up to you to make sure you take out that minimum distribution each year. It's up to you to calculate it correctly. So that's another benefit of Roth is that you can take as much or as little out as you want, as long as you've held the account long enough and have reached the correct age. 
So with the IRA, that also has a maximum contribution limit per year. In 2023, it's $6,500. Again, if you're over 50, you can contribute up to another thousand, so $7,500. The traditional IRA is pre-tax. So you can put that $6,500 in and it comes off your taxable income and you'll have to pay taxes on it when you take it out later. If you get a Roth version, you will put the money in after you've paid taxes on it. It's possible to have both an IRA and a Roth IRA. Aggregate limit, contribution limit is $6,500. So if you put $3,000 into a traditional Roth IRA, you can only put no more than $3,500 into a Roth per year. So (laughs) I feel like I need a flow chart for these. So I was going to (laughs) say, I can just see, oh my God, so which thing am I supposed to do? I mean, obviously, if you have a traditional W-2 job, your traditional salaried employee and your employer offers a 401k, especially if it has matching, that seems like the obvious and most easy mm-hmm. thing to do. Mm-hmm. It sounds like if you're a freelance worker or gig worker, entrepreneur, whatever, non, non-traditional employee, set up an IRA, have it set to deduct a certain amount. Are those kind of like the baseline advice mm-hmm. you would give? So in general, I recommend for gig workers. If they can do a solo 401k, I recommend doing that just because you can put more money aside with that. And then if not, if that's not possible, I generally recommend a Roth IRA. And there's a couple reasons for that. If you expect that you will make more money in the future, you will be paying lower taxes on this money by putting into a Roth IRA now. Because if you're a 30-something gig worker who is hustling to make 40000 a year, your income is going to be a lot less than 20 years from now, presumably, once you've kind of gotten your business off the ground, gotten your feet under you, and you're bringing in 250000 a year. So you want to pay 40000 a year taxes. And then the other reason why I think it can be really helpful for gig workers is because you don't pay taxes like a traditional employee does with it withheld from each paycheck and you're paying quarterly estimated taxes, you are less likely to notice the difference between putting money aside into a Roth IRA than you are putting it into something that is is tax deferred. I also think it's helpful to have a Roth IRA because one of the things that can be really tough in retirement is if you have a major health problem or have a a sudden health scare, you fall and break a hip or you need cancer treatment, something like that, the cost of healthcare is scandalous and can be a major expense in retirement. If you are living on some sort of fixed income in retirement or if you've planned it out, taking additional money from a taxable account means that you'll owe more in taxes in retirement And it will mean more of your social security benefits will be subject to tax. So if you need to pay $40,000 for some sort of healthcare all at once, taking $40,000 out of your 401k is going to have kind of a big effect on your taxes that year. Whereas if you've got it in your Roth IRA, you can take it out and it doesn't affect anything else. And so that's one reason why I suggest for folks, like even if they haven't thought about anything about healthcare and retirement, about long-term care plans, anything like that, having a Roth IRA, and even if you only throw hundred bucks a month in it every month, that will be helpful to have. You will be glad you had it when you get to retirement. Yeah. That was something I wanted to ask about, especially around like long-term care. What are some of the things that when people are planning for retirement that they don't think about? I think a lot of people don't 
think about it until it happens maybe to their parents or their grandparents, like how much like nursing home Mm long-term care Mm -hmm. costs. So Fidelity does a study every year where they calculate how much a 65-year-old retiring couple would need to pay for health care for their entire retirement. And the most recent numbers are for 2022, and it's about $300,000. And what's concerning about that statistic is that a 65-year-old couple will be on Medicare. You are eligible for Medicare as of age 65. And so that is out-of-pocket costs on top of having Medicare. Mm. Now, before everyone starts like hiding under a desk and hyperventilating, one thing about the Fidelity study is that their calculations assume that once you have a negative health event, like once you break a hip, it's a slow slide to death after that, rather than what actually happens for most people is like you, you get surgery, you get through therapy, and you're able to go back home and live independently and be basically fine and, until something else might happen or you're ready to move into a more assisted facility, something like that. So a big part of that expense is going to be things like long-term care because Medicare does not cover nursing home care. That is something that surprises people. There's this assumption that, okay, if I need to go into a nursing home, Medicare will cover it. That is not the case. There is some things that people can do. There's long-term care insurance, which is where you pay insurance premiums and the long-term care will pay for. And usually there's like a limit, 36 months worth of care in some sort of assisted living facility or nursing home. The thing about long-term care is that unlike other insurance products, it's a relatively small market. And so it's not like looking for life insurance or even homeowner's insurance where you can check out a lot of different products. There are people trying to disrupt the industry. The other thing that studies have found is that it is only helpful for somewhere around 35% of people. And it's folks who have nest eggs of around 400000 to about a million dollars. If you've got more than that, you're generally going to be better self-paying. If you've got less than that, you're going to be generally better off drawing down all of your assets until you qualify for Medicaid, which does pay for long-term care. All of this is incredibly depressing to think about. (laughs) And nobody wants to do this math. Yeah. I mean, if you can't convince 40-year-olds to save for retirement, good luck convincing them Mm -hmm. to figure out their long-term care plans. Yeah. Yes. And so- A lot of it is like you figure it out as you go along. And as I said, it's scandalous. When I was first doing a lot of research into this sort of thing, I was, my husband would come home from work and I'd be like, they're making people's nanas figure this out. (laughs) I mean, that's, well, that's the other thing, right? Is it's people leave it to when they need it. Mm -hmm. And when they need it is when they're in a difficult health Mm -hmm. position, perhaps Mm -hmm. mentally declining, like all of these things, that's probably the worst time to try to, Mm -hmm. most overwhelming time to try to figure it out. Or they leave it to their kids to figure out. Yes. And so that's why I kind of recommend like a light touch, like in the, the sense of open a Roth IRA, put money aside for that. Maybe you'll need it for long-term care. Maybe you need it for healthcare. Maybe you need it for living expenses, but you'll be glad you have it. And it's a (laughs) multi-tool. Similarly, you can use a high deductible health plan with an HSA, a health savings account, to set money aside where you can set pre-tax money into the health savings account. It grows tax-free. And as long as you use it for healthcare, you can take it out tax-free. So you never pay taxes on it if you're using it for healthcare. 
if you have access to that kind of health plan with an HSA, it is worthwhile to to put some money aside in it, whether you use it now because, you know, your kid gets a softball to the lip and needs reconstructive surgery, or it stays in there until you retire and you use it for healthcare or long-term care in retirement. So that's kind of where I land if you're someone whose eyes roll back in your head when you hear the word percentage, then what you need to do is just get yourself some multitaskers like that and put some money in them. And then as you age, keep reevaluating the situation in a optimistic but realistic way. So maybe once you're in your 70s, you might think, you know what, I'm going to downsize to a house that's only on one floor. So I don't have to go up and down the stairs three times a day. That those are the sorts of things. Generally, the worst situations in retirement come from an inability to accept what's happening. And whether that is from the retiree who's facing some health problems or does not have the money that they thought they would or something like that, or from family members who just can't face the fact that mom's forgetting things and maybe needs some help. So being open to the situation as it is at every point while kind of putting some money away for anything that you might need it for is going to give you the most options when options become scarcer. Yeah. Oh God. That's all. It's all chilling, but very (laughs) practical and helpful. It's like what we need to hear. We all need to hear this. Let's step back a little bit more because we've talked about the movement of ages, right? And so we've seen the retirement age creep in the U.S. And I'm sure there was recently the news of the nationwide protests in France around increasing the retirement age. We talked kind of a little bit why that retirement age is going up. But what do you see kind of, is there a trend for people working longer, thinking about that time in their lives differently? I mean, obviously people are hopefully living longer, not everybody, but the mm-hmm. life expectancy has gone up. I mean, is there, are people thinking about their 60s and 70s and 80s differently than before? I think there is a big difference. Now, part of it is work has changed so much just in my lifetime. So, I mean, for one thing, there were People who work from home in the 80s, you were like, oh, they're getting scammed. <laughs> That's yeah, an envelope stuffing. Envelopes. Yep, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Whereas it's very common now to the point where I, when I first started freelancing in 2010 and I tell people I work from home, I still got kind of like a, yeah, what do, doing what? Do you have <laughs> where, a re- legitimate job? Yeah. yeah but now, yeah. We, yeah. So that expansion of work. Now, that means that people are more able to do work even through health problems or issues with disability or family issues, things like that, which is in some ways a very good thing, but it is also an expansion of work in that we are never not at work because we always have a smartphone in our pocket and our laptop with us. I also think that people these days, and very much especially the younger millennials and Gen Z, and God bless them for it, are refusing to accept work that they are not, that are not good fits for them. They like, no, I'm not going to be exploited by my workplace. No, (laughs) I'm not going to accept that. No, I'm not going to do something that sounds just plain awful. And What that means, I think, for the younger generations, and this is me peering into a crystal ball, so I might be completely wrong, but I think that means that they are going to find more sustainable 
work practices that they actually enjoy and will help expand the idea of work. So it's my hope that we are going to be in a situation where people continue to choose to work because it is fulfilling for them in addition to being an important part of their finances, rather than it being like, all right, I'm going to work until I have exhausted my body and my mind, and then I'm going to retire and sit in a chair and do crossword puzzles until I die. That's really grim. And that was the reality of retirement in a lot of ways in previous generations. Yeah. I'm so glad you're painting a more hopeful picture. And that's a really great kind of bookend to what you're talking about. I mean, we have that mindset. There's one way to look at it where, well, we're all screwed. The baby boomers had it the best and we don't have anything. Or like we can choose to work differently, to think about work differently and not literally work until our bodies are broken and then we have a very short time and then that's it. Like Mm -hmm. to kind of rethink one, how we're being forced to rethink how we save for retirement, but maybe also we get to rethink what retirement actually looks like. Well, and similarly, I really hate the fact that we often have this idea of, we call it work-life balance, as if work and life are two separate spheres, but you're still at your life when you're at work. And so we have a similar kind of black and white thinking about retirement, like you work and then you retire and then you have fun. Whereas for many of us, there are seasons where we need to take a step back from work because we're caring for our children, we're caring for our elderly parents. We just need a break or we have an incredible opportunity to travel. And so I would like to see that kind of balance spread out more along our lives so that it feels more like, yeah, I'm working for four or five years doing this. I took a year off because I had a baby or I wanted to help my sister with my autistic nephew or whatever it is, or I wanted to train for something different. And then I go back to work. And instead of it being this sense of we chunk things together, like the stay 30 years at one, one company, having more balance and free-flowing idea of what work is, what our lives are, and that it's possible to have gaps in employment that is meaningful to our lives and does not matter to our careers. Yeah. I feel that so much. And I feel that, yeah, that season, that life comes in seasons. It's mm-hmm. not a chunk of work and a chunk of non-work. It's all of both at all the times. So many people are finding themselves right now in this really difficult position of kind of competing priorities for saving and for debt and for things like paying off student loan debt, paying for childcare, paying for their kids' college, paying for elder care for their parents. How can a person with those kind of urgent right now financial Mm -hmm. obligations balance planning for this thing in the future of retirement that like seems so far off when they have these like urgent things that they need to pay for right now. It's such a difficult situation. And they call that being in the sandwich generation. And you feel like you're being pulled in every direction. What's important is to actually be intentional and sit down and actually think about it. Who do I want to be? Like, how do I want to live? How do I want to be a member of my family? How do I want to take care of the people I love? Because so often it's just reflexive, reactive. Oh my goodness, mom needs help. Okay, I'll start sending $600 a month because she needs it. And oh gosh, where's that going to come from? That came from the daycare budget. Okay, so I'll see if I can put my student loans on deferment. And so you're having these reactive methods of handling the finances rather than being intentional. So figuring out like, 
what is it that you want to be able to provide for your family? And maybe what it is, like you want your parents to feel financially comfortable. And so you are willing to send that 600 bucks a month to your mom. And you'll figure out, okay, you know what? Putting my student loans on deferment right now is going to be like the best option for this so that I can take care of mom. I know that this is temporary or I know that this is what I want to be able to show my kids how we can care for family. Or you might be like, okay, I want to help mom, but I can't afford that. Can she come live with me? And then there's a different kind of financial outlay for that, but it does not affect like the daycare bills and your student loan payments. And so having that kind of take a moment and think through it is going to be much easier, even though it doesn't feel like at the time it feels okay, there's a fire, here's a bucket of water, figure out where you want the water to go. And that is something that a lot of people don't necessarily do because we tell ourselves these stories, family helps family. I'll be a bad daughter if I don't do this. I'll be a bad mother if I don't pay for my kid's college. And taking the time to be like, what does it mean to be a good daughter? What does it mean to be a good mother? What does it mean for me to be independent? And having all of those thought processes will help you find the right decision rather than kind of just reacting your way into the decisions that feel most useful in the moment, but may not actually be helping you. Oh, that's such good advice. I feel like so many people need to hear that. Yeah. Well, Emily, thank you so much for all of this advice. I feel like this is an episode that people are going to need to like pause, take notes, come back to. I'm maybe just speaking for myself. I feel like there was a little bit of therapy in here as well. But thank you so much. This is such valuable information. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Work is changing every day. What's the most pressing issue on your mind? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. 